You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 29 West Tolpehawken Street. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. So, we're in this series of things Jesus never said. And uh, we're talking about this stuff because we're trying to pay attention to our minds and how that impacts our hearts. Uh, in some ways, I think that maybe none of us think these things that we've been talking about. But in other ways, we also just live it. We like subconsciously absorb the wisdom uh, of the world. Or we actually might go consciously seeking it. Um, there's a ton of motivational videos on YouTube. Maybe, maybe you're a regular watcher, but I'm not. So I admit I got sucked in this week. Because um, tonight I want to talk about live your dreams. This is, if you Google that, you'll find so many inspirational things to watch. Um, it's very American way, right, to live your dreams. We, we are sold the American dream, this ideal that equality of opportunity is available to everyone which allows your highest aspirations and your goals to be achieved. Um, Jesus never said, live your dreams. He, he actually said, come follow me. And he taught us a whole different way to live. Following Jesus' way means actively resisting this whole narrative of the American dream, which also means uncovering the ways that it disguises the policies and the practices that benefit people of the dominant group and exclude others. The American dream uh, makes it seem as if upward mobility is possible for everyone through sacrifice and risk-taking and hard work. But the reality is that while we are sold this idea of the American dream, there are systems in place that make it impossible for some. So specifically, I want to start by at least talking about my, how my whiteness has shaped the way that I think about success and living the dream. Not all of you are white, so you might not relate uh, to my experience, but we are all impacted by the ways that whiteness is built into the American dream. I didn't grow up with this idea of, like, follow your dreams. Like, that was not something that was said in my household. In fact, my Christian family actively taught me that Jesus is the center of my life. And when my heart is following Jesus, my life is going to reflect that. It wasn't about living for yourself. And while I didn't consciously aspire to live the American dream with the house and the white picket fence and whatever else, I did quietly collect and synthesize information about success that was shaped by my whiteness. So I grew up in Lancaster County, which is 82% white, um, around a lot of simple, hardworking people, farmer-type people. And while nobody was in my immediate family was a farmer, um, most were laborers of some kind and have a strong work ethic. So I understood 
that what you achieve is based on what you work for. Your, your individual effort is tied to failure or success. Efforts lead to success. That's, that's essentially how you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, this means, conversely, that people who don't succeed don't care or haven't put in the effort. It kind of reveals a character flaw in some way. None of this was, was said directly, but this is how I synthesized things. The, world, the word lazy was used in our house not to describe other people directly, because that would be very judgmental, but to describe uh, any time that was not being used productively. So my father would even like deride himself for, uh, out loud, for being lazy if he ever let an afternoon go by just sitting in front of the TV. Um, even time sitting with the family or visiting was taken away from things that needed to get done. He, was al he always had this long list of projects and jobs to do for our family and for other people. I don't, I don't think I knew anyone as generous or hardworking as my dad. He would spend all day at work, long, long work days in physical labor, and then come home to fix things around our house or go to someone's house to chop down a tree or chop up a tree that was laying in their yard or help them fix something. So some of our cultural norms are taught explicitly, right? But most are taught implicitly. So as a child, I was like quietly interpreting what I saw and heard. And I assumed that people who succeed must have exhibited superior skill or have exerted like extra effort. And when I saw um, white people living, uh, leading the country, organizations, businesses, um, teaching, thriving. I had a lot of evidence to collect uh, and interpret. And black people weren't around me much. Uh, they were in poor city neighborhoods or on the five o'clock news. So I assumed that most white people have better values and lack the character flaws of black folks. And then that was compounded, I think, by the acts of charity and service that for, for people that I implicitly understood to have these character flaws, which meant in my mind somehow that they were inferior. And overseas missions to brown and black people, as well as volunteer work in the inner city, kind of contributed to this compounding narrative of white superiority and capacity. Again, not because anybody said this to me. I just took in the information that I had and synthesized it. Missing from this storyline was a lot of information about the ways in which like white Europeans who look like me had established our government and our systems and our policies that favored people who look like me. And, and part of that was, part of why I, I didn't, I, I, part of why I missed it, I think, is my family wasn't wealthy. So 
It wasn't until later that I understood the advantage of being connected to a dominant group and how those advantages impact someone else's opportunities to succeed. I sort of had this idea that disadvantaged folks were down on their luck or just had a hard life or made some poor decisions. I understood that hard work and achievement were linked. And it, it wasn't that hard to attribute success solely to personal merit. God save me. Jesus does reorient our ideas of success and independence. And um, like, I guess about 16 years ago when I first connected to Circle of Hope, we met at 10th and Locust downtown, and um, somehow we worked out, we got permission at a local university, I think, to show um, a video, like in a theater. And we all went over to watch this video, Race, the Power of an Illusion. You can still see it online. Uh, there are three episodes. We only watched one part that night, as far as I can remember, but it was such a powerful illumination for me. The first episode, was talking about how there's no, all this research, genetic research, that about there's no basis, genetic basis, for race. That it is a social construct. And that social construct had led to so many assumptions in my childhood about why black people weren't successful, just to tie this back to live your dreams. And then the third episode of... Um, Race, the power of an illusion, but it's, it's called The House We Live In. Talked about how in the 1930s, the federal government created the Federal Housing Administration, whose job it was to provide backing for loans so that GIs coming home from the war could purchase a home and get education and um, jobs. And then there were federal programs and banks that sank money into the construction of uh, industry of, of homes. And people were allowed to put very little money down and had some of the easiest credit terms in history. And from what I understand, this wasn't directly um, exclusionary to people of color, but in practice it was. That's how it, how it was um, enacted. The FHA warned that the presence of black families in certain neighborhoods would undermine the values of these houses. Of the, and, and the government officials institutionalized this appraisal system where race was as much a factor as a condition of properties. If you already know all of this, that's great. But I thought it was worth naming because when you think about the American dream, particularly in regards to owning land and owning a home, and the wealth and security that come as a result of that, this is like instrumental to where this um, came from. There were intentional policies and practices that kept people of color from buying homes in certain areas that were then also deemed more valuable. So the net worth for white families grew. Where, where white families live in America, where any family lives in America, is not just a matter of preference, but it was constructed in a way that allowed white families to accumulate wealth and generational wealth through homes and land. 
So back to Jesus' invitation to follow him. You can read through the Gospels and see that Jesus was, was pulling, was calling, excuse me, was calling to everyday people, fishermen, to come follow him, to leave behind their way of life, the stability of their family business and family, and into essentially this new family and this new family business. He trained them in his way, and then he sent them out with the good news that the kingdom of God is here, that through Jesus, God is making his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Through Jesus, they became citizens of a new kingdom with a new economy and a new ruler. Jesus is saying the same thing to us today. Come follow me. He's teaching us his way and giving us the same message that we as the church are to announce that the kingdom, announce the kingdom of God and live in it. When individualism rules our culture, being the church is countercultural. We're not each out to follow our own dreams. That's empire thinking that's built on a lie that benefits only some. I went on to be a trained social worker, convicted to work against the effects of systemic issues. I care deeply about that. But working against something is not enough. I, I heard this call from Jesus to build the church, to make disciples that could reveal the kingdom of God now. And, and we have heard this call together. We're building something. I was feeling the urgency of this a couple weeks ago when a student who graduated from my kid's school was shot in the head and died on the streets in Mount Airy. His siblings still go to Henry, where my, with, along with my kids, and the whole school was rocked by this tragic loss. That same week, my son was in art class making a paper mache project with two of his classmates at his table, who started chatting about how their parents are both divorced. And they were relating to each other about this hardship, and one girl described a huge fight that her parents had had. And the other little girl said, yeah, those daddies get real mad and then they do this. And he choked, she choked Isaiah, strangled him really with her hands around his neck. Um, uh, before she even knew or he even knew what she was doing. Working through that with Isaiah and his teacher my heart was broken again for the suffering and the trauma that children carry. Then the next morning I came here, upstairs on the second floor, um, to help the core team that's starting a playgroup, a free playgroup for the, for the community, do this dry run, get things set up, figure out how it's gonna work. And I left there with such an urgency to buy this building. Seeing, seeing these babies in their mother's arms and realizing again how essential it is for parents to have support, for children to have the stability of a community 
in order to develop resilience for what they will face in the world. It made me all the more convicted that having a permanent home with a physical presence that's open to the public matters. Just, just the other Saturday, we were out in this parking lot and here in this building celebrating the village parenting that we're, we're working out all the time. We need to be reminded in order to keep building it and extending it to other people. This village creates an environment among us where children can experience the love of Christ through us. Thanks to Kim Crognally and a large children's team across our whole church who plan and lead us to care for children and make space for those yet to come. I think what we're building feels fragile and imperfect, of course. I was, I was feeling the words of the Apostle Paul that we have this treasure in jars of clay. We feel small and fragile in our own ways. But we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And ourselves as Jesus, as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light in our, shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We have this power, or we have this treasure, excuse me, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power from God is not from us. We are hard-pressed, but not crushed perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in us, in our body, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Jesus says, come follow me and calls us away from our own way of life into a communal one, one where we have this communal message about what it looks like to live under the reign and the rule of Christ. It doesn't mean we all leave our jobs or something like that. But it, but it is an orientation of our hearts and our lives to be the church and to build something together that reveals the freedom and the love of Christ in the world. There were... So many examples of this as the Compassion Corps team and Danny uh, led us last weekend through a tour of our Compassion teams and the many ways that we're entering into suffering with those around us through Compassion. On Friday and Saturday alone, we shared meals together, we built sheds, we uh, walked through the Wissahickon, we listened to stories, we shared grief and joy and music and stories. How many people were a part of that compassion tour in some way? And, and add to, keep your hands up for a second, how many of you are on one of our compassion teams or on a team that makes this meeting happen or one of our cells happen? It's a lot of us. You don't even have to be on a team to be participating in building this. All of us are doing it together, even by showing up. Um, 
Israel is our Sunday meeting coordinator. He's, he works with all of our Sunday meeting teams to plan and design these meetings together. He was telling me this week about how using his gifts for the church is invigorating to his whole life. It doesn't look like living the dream, does it, Israel? <laughs> Sharing a poem at the Sunday meeting is not going to get him to fame. Uh, spending time collaborating and organizing a bunch of regular people to make this meeting happen. It doesn't earn him status as a filmmaker with big institutions. But he said it does nourish his soul and feeds his faith to share his gifts and to bless people. He does care about our amateur quality of doing things. He wants to help us develop. And he's a gifted artist that he brings beauty and simplicity and creativity to help us connect with God and express our hearts in worship. I would argue that everyone, all of you here, are doing that too in your own way. By relating to those around you, by engaging as you're able, you are helping to build a church that can have a physical, tangible presence and an impact that can sustain all of those compassionate efforts that, and good businesses and uh, relief and development work and everything else that, that flows out from us. We can't do that to, alone. We have to do that together. This lie that we make our own destiny, that we live our best lives by following our dream, um, people are still being consumed, even by their own lives and by unjust and un unequitable realities. We are, we are saved not by our own ability or our, or our capacity to manage our own life or make our own success. As I said before, our country's economic systems are not designed for health and wellness for everyone. So working out how to live in this new economy of Christ where money is not an individual thing takes time and transformation. And so many of you have helped me get free from that lie. For example, we have one common fund for all four congregations. And a portion of everything that we share together in common creates a mutuality fund that, so that we're all participating in supporting each other when needs arise. We've created good businesses through Circle Thrift, Circle Spaces, and Circle Kids. Martha just told me, she's our good business manager, she told me that the Mennonite Central Committee stores, thrift stores across the U.S., together gave $14 million to relief and development work of MCC around the world. And our thrift stores alone contributed 1% of that, $125,000. That's really incredible. When we started, we didn't even know if, that, if this was going to work as a business. We also, through our good business works, support well over 20 local organizations doing compassion work in our neighborhoods through grants and partnerships. 
You also might have heard, if you didn't, I want you to hear, that we have a debt annihilation team. We created this system to dismantle consumer debt that enslaves people individually. We think that Jesus, this is the work of Jesus, and so we have to help each other do it. Um, NPR interviewed our uh, two, two different people on our uh, debt annihilation team recently, and they're great interviews. That's really encouraging. Check them out on uh, NPR One, and that's uncomfortable. Uh, our current debt annihilation team cohort, which started in January of this year, uh, has one more credit line to pay off, which is a total of 11 credit lines. And then the seed repayment money that they're going to pay into the next for the next group to use will start in the summer of 2020. Anyway, those are some radical examples of how um, Jesus is leading us to live under the reign and rule of Christ in this new kingdom. The lie that the American dream is that we must be self-sufficient. We must be able to take care of yourself no matter what. And the subtext there is that no one else is going to. Jesus is undoing that in us when we learn to let ourselves be known and be vulnerable and to build something in mutuality. When we share what we have and redistribute resources. When someone shows up to a cell and says, I'm not okay, it is one step towards dismantling the self-sufficiency and the silent condemnation that comes with that. It's one step towards revealing the kingdom of God. I'm so encouraged to build the church with you all. We can continue to dismantle the false narratives that the world gives us and proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. God, may our life be knit together like we started singing tonight. Not because we're great people who are good at this or something, but because following you compels us to figure this out, to build the church in a way that can reveal your what it looks like to live under the reign and rule of Christ. May we keep submitting to that and following your spirit and living in radical ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.